You prototype as if you know that you're right, but you test as if you know you're wrong. Hey everyone, and welcome to No Fat Cats, where we help high-performing creative teams get even better. I hope 2020 is off to a great start for you. I know uh, for me, this, this year has been a good opportunity to reflect on last year and what all happened, um, successes and failures, and to kind of rethink and get energized for, for this year. Looking back on 2019, uh, one of the things that I wish I would have done more of is spending more time doing this, this podcast, and uh, working on ways to, to grow my business and grow my thought process as a strategy leader rather than as much time working on, on other people's projects. And so uh, one of my goals for this year is to really just set aside more time, like the same time every week. So for me, it's going to be Wednesday, Wednesday morning until three o'clock, where my goal is I'm working on things such as podcast or whether it's email, things that are working on the business rather than in the business to help grow things. And I've come to realize that being busy and editing and doing other people's projects is actually what's keeping me back from being able to do the things that I really want to be doing and growing in the ways I want to be doing. And so one of my goals for 2020 is actually to start saying no to a lot of things. I've now come to realize that there are a lot of things I could be doing, but not everything is going to be meaningful and really make a difference further down the line. And there's lots of times small projects here and there that I take them thinking, oh, it's going to be quick. It's not going to take that long. But inevitably, when I look back, it took up a lot of my time and kept me from doing the things that I really wanted to be doing and that were going to have a long, long-term impact. And so my goal for 2020 is to spend a lot more time working on things that I really want to do and set aside that time deliberately. And with that, we're now back in the swing of things with an interview with Jesse Miller. That is Jesse with two S's and two E's, who is a design thinking strategist. Before my conversation with her, I never heard of design thinking and what that meant. And at first I thought, oh, is it graphic design thinking? But no, it's actually, how do you have a framework for innovation? And we go in this interview, we go through the five steps, which are empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. And I really think these steps have a lot of potential for running them through the creative process. Because I think what often happens is people come and they say, oh, I need a new logo. I need to create, I need to promote something. I need to sell something. I need a video. Without actually stopping to think through, go all the way to the back and understand, do you actually understand your customers? Do you understand your user? Have you actually defined their problem? And then have you generated a lot of ideas for how you could solve that problem. Because too often, we aren't doing all of those things. We're just jumping into, let's create something, and then we put it out there and see if it works without actually going through a series of tests and testing it. So as you listen through this interview, think of the steps that Jesse is talking about through whatever your profession is, whatever your field is, and think, how can I be doing these steps more in my work? And I know I'm definitely gonna take a lot of those things into my work and uh, loved the interview with Jesse Miller. Without further ado, here's Jesse. Thanks, Jesse, for being on the podcast. So I know you are a design thinking strategist, um, which is an awesome, awesome t- title. And um, you've kind of have that that background of design thinking, and also I know you have a background in business. But you, so it's two things you're very much passionate about. Uh, now, for those who might not be familiar. 
I know the, the first thing, especially if you're in the creative industry, when you think about design, you think, you know, hey, you do graphic design. Um, but it, but from what I understand, you know, design thing is actually so much, so much more than that. So, um, so I guess first question, do you actually do any graphic design work or, and what is uh, design at, at the deeper level, design thinking specifically? Yeah. So like you said, people kind of tend to make assumptions or infer that I can do something or have the talent to do something that I certainly do not. Um, so I will get people who ask me if I can do graphic design or if I can draw floor plans or if I can paint. And the answer is generally no. Um, I can do graphic design and illustrator and InDesign, but um, I could ne- I don't have the skill or the talent or the knowledge that an actual graphic designer would have. But I can kind of get by with someone who may not know <laughs> what a graphic designer is fully capable of. So you have a, have a foundation skill, but... Um... But not, don't consider yourself yeah. a graphic designer, which is a much different thing. Yeah, and that's primarily because in the industry and also throughout school, college, um, if you go to turn something in, you kind of need a platform to be able to do that with. And so InDesign and Illustrator became platforms that I was able to design things or um, present things in a way that was professional and also aesthetically pleasing, I suppose, and structure things in a way that was more readable. And so I had to learn how to use both of those programs as well as several other programs as well too. But yeah, those are kind of graphic designer um, software platforms that I am familiar with now. Oh, so it sort of became just the standard, um, you know, I I might not consider myself a writer, but I can use Word sort of thing. And so you naturally started using some of those programs. Yeah, exactly. So naturally I had to learn how to use, um, I had to learn how to use Adobe Illustrator, InDesign, XD, had to teach myself how to use things like AutoCAD and um, Google SketchUp, which then again leads to the question of, oh, so can you do architecture? Are you an interior designer? And the answer is no, no, I can't, but I'm certified in design thinking, which can be applied to spaces, it can be applied to products, it can be applied to services, really anything. And so to be able to work in that um, space of like architectural redesigning elements of cities or like doing a city park or whatever you want to talk about applying design thinking to that I have to be able to kind of speak a language a little bit and so that's why I had to learn all those different platforms but yeah definitely not an interior designer or a graphic designer but what they do is amazing yeah well I know what I was particularly interested in on your end with with design is that it's like a, a step process of of actually thinking through things and I know on my end too with kind of a background in videos that often people just start jumping to, oh, we, we need a video or, you know, we need a logo or, and, and they don't actually stop and think deeply about it or, or actually figure out what the problem is or set their goals. But, um, but it sounds like design thinking really addresses a lot of those, like the root issues before you actually start creating something. Yeah. Would you be able to walk us through like, what are those steps for design thinking? Kind of the, the basic foundation. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of kind of quick things that I like to make sure we all have in common first. Our first is the word design, because again, that's one of those words that has so many different connotations to it. You know, when you look at that, it can be a noun, it can be an adjective, it can be a verb. Um, But at the core of what design is, from kind of a creative standpoint, it's just an empowering approach. It's a way to look at the world differently and try to ignite different kind of possibilities to make the world better or the context that you're working in better. So design thinking kind of piggybacks off of design, of course, it's in the name. And so it's an approach that's driven by creative and analytical thinking. So you're leveraging both sides of the brain. 
and it works in a divergent, convergent fashion. So most of the time when we want to make a decision or we have a project come across our plate, we say, okay, here's, here's the task at hand. What do we need to do to get it done? And that tends to work in a way that kind of pushes everything in like almost like you're funneling something down until you have this product. Where design thinking says, hold up. Instead, let's push it the opposite way up the funnel, which tends to make no sense to people. And let's um, really diverge how we're going to think about this. Let's come up with 20 solutions instead of just one. And of course, that you know, at the onset, that's like, why would you do that? That is so time consuming. Um, but it can actually be pretty quick. And you had mentioned um, the different steps to design thinking. And traditionally, there are five. And if you look up the phases of design thinking or the modes or the stages, whatever word you want to use for that, you'll typically find um, a core of five, but some people might tack on six or they might call them something slightly different. But traditionally, the phases are thought of as empathize, define, ideate, prototype and test are those five stages. Okay. And so, so I find that really interesting too, because and I can definitely relate to the process where people come up with the, Oh, I need this. And then you start the process of how do we distill it down to get to what, to what we need. Um, but you're saying if you stop and at that moment, take, take your problem and actually think about multiple solutions or go backwards, you actually will come up with something that's better. Uh, is, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, that tends to be kind of what design thinking is focused on. In particular, it focuses on the user or the human um, through an approach called human-centered design, which t- is also kind of another fun, fun term out there right now. So it says, before you do anything, we're going to stop and we're going to make sure we understand our user. We're actually going to make sure we're not only addressing a problem, but addressing the right problem. Because so often we, we go and we start to tackle something and we get into it and we're rolling with it and we might realize, oh, this isn't even really the problem here. So, for example, we were looking at online one of our courses that I work for Indiana Wesley University. So, for example, that might be that students are having trouble understanding how to cite something. And we say, well, um, our directions are unclear, or they don't have the resources, or they're just not willing to teach themselves. And so we need to put more resources online for students to use. And that may not be the problem at all that's, that's really at hand. More so the problem might be that students are having, there might be too many resources. We might have given them four different resources that are actually conflicting. Or it could be an issue of a student saying, you know, I really just need somebody to sit down with me. I'm not able to explain it to myself. So they're different. It's just a way of kind of stepping back and saying, what's the actual problem here that the customer or the user or the human is having? Let's back up to that and figure that out first before we do anything else. And, and that's part of the, the first step. And can you remind me, what, what is that called again? Yeah, yeah. So empathize or empathy is that first step. Okay. So, so, and people can look this up by just typing the steps by just typing, you know, design, design theory 101 or something like that. Right. Oh yeah. Okay. And so I can see this being a big issue because there are times when people come to you and say, Oh, I need this. I need that. Um, but you're saying is that you really do need to go back and look at the, um, the actual problem. And as how often do you find, do people not have a good understanding of what the problem actually is? Nine times out of ten. <laughs> I don't I don't have an actual statistic for it. 
But one of the things that we're putting in place at our university is saying, hey, you have this really awesome idea, but what's the problem you're trying to solve? So it's not even what's the right problem. The first step is like, are you even solving a problem? Because it could be a really fun idea to create a new course. But if the, because um, that's what we do here on our side of things is, you know, we'll create courses for students or create a new program. But if there's not a proven need, if people don't need that, then it's not going to do well in the marketplace. And ultimately, it's not going to be helpful to students. So we have to kind of make sure our ideas are rooted in a problem and then also that they're rooted in the right problem. So kind of summarizing up that empathy phase. Empathy is really the work you're doing to understand people within the context that they are in, that they are living in or that they're experiencing your company, your product, your service in. Um, so we would consider that like that's your design challenge. Your, that's the context of your design challenge. And it's our job as a designer or as um, a business analyst or an instructional designer working on courses, an interior designer, you name it, anyone. It's our job on that end of things to understand what your customer is doing, why they're doing what they're doing, to understand their physical and emotional needs, which sounds kind of like a lot, um, how they think about the world and what and why is meaningful to them as it relates to your, or your product or your service or your space. So that's kind of empathy in a nutshell. Yeah, and so do you often find that just people are just completely ignoring that step and jumping to, hey, let's make a course, a solution without really identifying what the problem actually is? Yeah, and I think that's natural because for me, when I look at coming up with new solutions, that's fun, that's exciting. And some people do this naturally. So for example, I have a younger sister and I always contrast us because she is such an empathetic, caring person. She wants to get to the core of what's wrong. She wants to understand the feelings and emotions and the thought behind something. And I'm like, let's get it done. And so I actually, this, this part of the design thinking process is the hardest for me because I am a mover. And in business, that's what we see. A lot of times we're trying to push a product out or trying to get something done. And so this feels so counterintuitive to go backwards instead of, you know, barreling forward to get something done. And I, I can see it too, that often, whether it's in organizations and businesses, the people who get stuff done are, are the people who are out pushing things forward. Um, and so they're not as likely to be someone who wants to actually take things in the opposite direction, which is let's stop and think about what the problem is, what we should be doing different. Um, and I can see why that this could just be uh, like so important for that process. And I've seen it time and time again, whether in, in you know work that we're doing, where someone has a plan, they want to go forward, they're excited, but it's like, wait, what what actually is your problem? And let's actually make sure we know what it is, not just what you think it is. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's important because so often, I would say again, nine times out of ten, the people we're designing for, the people that we're creating a product, a service, a space, you name it are not ourselves. And so a lot of times we make assumptions and assumptions can be good and they can be right sometimes. But because we're not designing for ourselves, we're not creating for ourselves, we have to understand our user in order to properly give them something that they need or want. In, in that, how do you actually identify and empathize with people and determine what that problem is? Like, what is that process you go through? Yeah, so there are an unlimited number of ways you can empathize with your customer or your user group, you name it. So... To give a couple of examples, 
I worked for an organization called Marion Design Co. You can actually look them up. They're awesome. And our first summer as an organization, I was kind of a part of like the founding group of people that started this. We said we wanted to look at Marion, Indiana, the city in Indiana, and figure out how we can how we can improve Marion because Marion's kind of a city um, that most people kind of tend to joke about or oh it's Marion you know or why would you want to go there you go to school there so you get a lot of those kind of negative comments and we said okay we want to do something about this and we decided well first of all we don't really know what the actual problem is you know what's the real reason that people give that sort of a response and it's not just people that are at Indiana Wesleyan in Marion it's, it's citizens it's who've been here for years and years and years. And so we spent our first four months as a group doing things like riding the bus, just riding the bus route. And it's a free bus route here in Marion, just looking at the city, observing what we saw, talking to people on the bus, not even necessarily saying, hey, so what do you think about Marion? But just, you know, what do you, oh, what do you do for a living? Getting to know people, what they do on a daily basis, what that looks like. So we did that. Um, and then once or twice a week, we invited different groups of people in for lunch and we fed them and it wasn't anything crazy. It was a pretty inexpensive lunch that we hosted. And during about an hour with them, we, you know, just talk about what they do, things about their job that they like, things about their personal life. And we would say, Hey, um, do you mind if we do a quick exercise? And we give them a, a stack of post-it notes and a pen and we'd say, can you write down words that come to your mind when you think of Marion?" one word per post-it note and we do this for about 20 30 minutes and we have a big collection of words and then we'd ask them to categorize them and so then you'd start to see things pop up like uh, drab or um like hopeless or just you'd see different things like that or abandonment or betrayed or and we started to learn more about the history of marion this way but then on the other thing on the other side we started seeing things appear that you know, Marion has everything it needs, and the people here are really great, and we have this awesome river, and, you know, just all these different things that they really loved about their community, such as home and family, and so, like I said, we did this at least once or twice a week for four months, and so by the end of the summer, we felt like we had a pretty good grasp on the people, and so we talked to everyone from firefighters and teachers and pastors and professors and all the mayor and all of his cabinet and the local universities and neighborhood association presidents and really anyone we could get our hands on to talk to. So that's one, that's one method. But the problem with that is we don't always have four months to set aside and say, we're gonna just study you like crazy and just get to know you. So that's one thing. So another kind of quick way to empathize with people is to create personas for people. And this is what we actually ended up doing out of this process is we had looked at the number of people we talked to and we said there is no possible way that we can synthesize like 150 to 200 people that we've been talking to you know and as like understand them as individuals and make any sort of assumption or come up with any sort of right problem to solve and so what we did is we created personas and we've also done this here at indiana wesleyan too we've done it a few times to understand students to understand some of our stakeholders and that is creating a persona that identifies or represents a group of people. And so, for example, here at Indiana Wesleyan, we said, okay, this type, this is a type of student. This is another type of student. This is another type of student. And we identify kind of categories of students. 
And then we then said, you know, okay, well, what is it, you know, what, what probably their name, what's their age? We gather all the kind of demographic um, answers or data on them. And we might say, what do they value most? What motivates them? What problems are they having as it relates to education, but also problems that they're having in their personal life? And you can take this as detailed as you want to. We have it, like certain groups have this or like this kind of data down to, oh, this group of people likes gardening and they don't like using credit cards, but they'll use a debit card. I mean, it can get very, very precise, but you don't have to have that much precision even to understand a group of people. But you can easily do personas in three to five days, gathering knowledge just by talking to different people in your community or your customers or whoever you're working with to create a good understanding with them. And if you go on Google, you can type in just persona templates and they'll pop up like crazy. That's a really useful tool that you can do. Okay. And so, so that's like one of the first steps is in that, that's still in the emphasize section then, right? Yep. Just understanding your user. Yep. Okay. And so once you've kind of gone that, through that process and you really understand your user, what is that next step? So that next step is the define phase. And then in this phase, you're thinking through everything that you've just seen and heard, everything you've done in the empathize phase. And now you're beginning synthesis. So you're drawing conclusions. So the define phase, you're bringing in clarity and focus to your design space or um, really like your, your challenge, your context, you're bringing it in there. And your number one goal for your defined phase is to come up with a meaningful and actionable problem statement that focuses on insights from the empathize phase and on the needs of a particular user or user group. So when I said earlier that we need a problem, but we need to make sure we're solving the right problem, this is us defining the right problem. It's coming to a conclusion on what that right problem is. And so what, what would be some examples of that in terms of defining that the right problem? Because I do think, you know, people often, especially when they're thinking through, oh, we need a product, we need some sort of creative piece, they, you know, they, they jump to it, but they don't always know if they have the right problem and they don't spend very much time thinking about the problem because they think they already know what their, their problem is. So how, how, do you, how do you know that you have the right problem, I guess? I don't know if there's a um, cut and dry way to know if you have the exact right problem but you know that you're on the right track if you can look back at your users and say, is this, is this a problem for them? Is this an actual need? If I were to go back and create a solution to this identified problem, it's going to make their life better. It's going to help them. And the other tricky thing about this is those users may not realize that it's a problem, which is even more difficult. Focus groups are another way to emphasize. It's pretty common, but however, as humans, we don't mean to, but we often lie. And it's kind of a funny thing. So we can take a product to them and say, hey, do you like this product? Or would you buy this product? Or would you use this? And we're like, yeah, sure, why not? That sounds great. And no, we, we probably wouldn't. <laughs> if it actually came out, we may not actually buy that product or use that service. And so um, that need could be something that they don't even realize that they have. Um, because they haven't, they haven't thought through or it's never presented itself to them. They haven't been in a situation yet or identified that as the actual, you know, intrinsic need that they have. So in some ways, it, it, there's not really a, a cut and dry, um, you know, answer. I mean, I, I think I've heard it is that the Henry Ford said that if, it, if he asked people what they, what they need, they just would have said faster horses. <laughs> um, we've never yeah. been even aware of a car. Exactly, yeah. 
so once you kind of you identify the problem in, in that stage, what is what is the next step then? Step step number three. Yeah, step three is my favorite, and this is ideation. So in this phase, you're literally just focusing on generating ideas. And so mentally, if you look at kind of what we've done, emphasize you're taking this idea, this problem you might have, this kind of this like this feeling that you need to do something or this task, and you're diverging, you're blowing it up really big. And then in the defining phase, you're pulling it in together, you're converging. So with ideation, you're pulling it all back out again, you're pushing out again. Um, so it's converging in terms of uh, the concept and the outcomes that you're working for. So ideation is both your fuel and it's your source material for building prototypes and then getting innovative solutions into the hands of your users. And one of the really tricky things for people about ideation, and one of the things that we do most often in business is we look for one right solution and we can wrap our brains trying to find the one right thing. When more often than not, it's, there's not one answer. There might be you know, three or four possible answers that all would work wonderfully. And so it's less about coming up with one right answer and more about generating just this really broad range of possibilities that could answer the need. So that's what you're doing in your ideation phase is just coming up with lots of ideas and lots of possible solutions without getting too hung up or married to one yet. That doesn't happen quite yet. Okay. So it's just a matter of come up with solutions that are, are going to solve your problem that you haven't thought of yet and, um, and to see how it's going to help you. Yeah, absolutely. And there are, like you had asked for empathizing, how do you do this? Again, for, this, for ideation, there are numerous, numerous ways to do this. One way that we like to do it at Indiana Wiseland is we like to do I, um, they're called Lotus methods or Lotus charts. And that's something, again, you can find online pretty easily. And that is you start with a central problem or idea. Then you branch it out into eight other ideas. And then you take each one of those eight ideas and branch them out again into eight new ideas. So you have, I think it's like 81 ideas by the time that you're done. So it's really, it takes about an hour or so, but you come up with a ton of ideas by the end of it. But that, how do you, how do you break that down then? Is that, is that, that's the next stage? So really kind of what we'll do, and this is, I think the ideation phase tends to be more organic in my mind. Um, I mean, it's just because I'm an idea person. Um, but in that you might come up with, like I said, 81 ideas. And oftentimes it's not uncommon for us or anyone really to come up with a hundred, 200 ideas to solve a problem. It doesn't mean that they have to work. It just means that they're an idea. Um, so for example, we were looking at a course here at Indiana Wesleyan and we said, what if Harry Potter influenced our solution? And of course, no, we can't really have wizards in our courses or have magic wands or anything like that. But just thinking through something that outlandish helps us to come up with good solutions. And of course, out of that 150, 81, whatever number of solutions we come up with, we can toss half of them out because they aren't viable but they start us thinking about something. So idea number two that we come up with might help me think of idea number three. It kind of like, kind of like a domino effect almost with ideas. Yeah, it get, get, gets you in the process of thinking creatively and helps you um, get in the mindset of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And so naturally four or five ideas might come to the top or maybe it's 10 ideas that naturally come to the top. And that's when we go into the next stage. But those those good ideas or um, probable ideas tend to start to rise up naturally on their own. Okay. So, so it's just a process of eventually when you think through things, eventually 
the really good ideas start to come up in a way that is going to be um, just naturally emerge is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And you can tell, like, if we're talking about building a course for students and, you know, we say we give everyone magic wands to do their homework, that one's not going to rise to the top naturally. And that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Those students would love that. Yeah, I can imagine anyone loving just, here's a magic wand, uh, you know, homework, leviosa, or, or whatever, and boom. Uh, but it does get you thinking about things in a way that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So after you think through the idea of ideate, how do you translate to the, to the next step? And what is that next step? Yeah, so the next step is prototyping. And again, like I said, if you look up phases or you look up design think you're going to see a couple of different iterations of it. But if human need is where we're going to start at in any design thinking article that you're going to read, then design thinking is rapidly going to move to learning by building or learning by making. So a lot of times we do this, we get in our rut of we think about what to build or we think about what to create. But in design thinking, we build in order to think. So it flips it on its head, which actually I think is really fun. So prototypes actually speed up the process of innovation because when we put our ideas out in the world, that's when we actually begin to understand them. We understand their strengths and their weaknesses when, we, when they're more tangible. And so um, the faster we can prototype, the faster our ideas evolve. And I had a professor, and it's actually, I'm very blessed and lucky that here at our organization, we have kind of a motto of uh, fail faster and fail cheaply. Because if we can fail on a small scale and learn really fast why we failed, that's awesome, because now we know it doesn't work about our idea, we can fix it and make it right. Um, and a lot of times prototypes, we tend to think of, like in my mind, I think of really beautiful 3D models of buildings, or some sort of elaborate, like little robot sort of prototype. But prototypes at first should be very, very simple. They should take minutes to make um, and cost you $5 or less. You can use pipe cleaners for a prototype. <laughs> I mean, very simple. So it can be, you might be role-playing out an activity. It might be doing a 3D model, or you might be storyboarding, putting together a gadget, wireframing. It could be in post-it notes. And then as we, of course, as we go through this prototyping process, we'll take a prototype, and then we might refine it and make it a little bit better, make it a little bit better, and keep fixing it as we go. And so, again, you're building to think and then we test the prototypes to learn. And so kind of the rule of thumb that I've learned for this personally is um, you prototype as if you know that you're right, but you test as if you know you're wrong. That's a good way to look yeah. at it. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting way to think about it. And kind of a fun example that I really enjoyed is I believe his name is Jake Knapp. He's, he used to work at Google or maybe he still does. I'm not sure. He is the father of design sprints, which is a whole nother topic. But he gives the example of hotel robots. And I'm not sure if you've ever encountered these or if anyone ever has. I, I, have, I have seen a robot at a, um, at a local university campus. I'm not a hotel, but I think it did like pizza delivery on, on wheels. <laughs> I felt like I was in like the future when I saw it. And I was like, Whoa, what is this? <laughs> I did see a robot trash can one time. Like it was full and then it started like scooting away. I was like, oh my goodness, what is that? <laughs> So these hotel robots, um, there's a company looking to make these, but they were scared, like you just brought up, that they might freak people out. And so the robot was designed to bring up things to your room. 
So if you call down to the front desk and requested extra towels or toothpaste or whatever it may be that you need, a robot brings it up. But they were like thinking to themselves, you know, how do we how do we make the customer experience of this robot pleasant? Because if you open your door and there's a robot there, what what am I to do? How do I know? <laughs> what is robot know? etiquette? What is the etiquette here? What is what is what is considered norm? I don't know. <laughs> do I tip a robot? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. A lot of questions. And so what they did was they began prototyping. And I think they just, I don't know if they used remote control cars or exactly what they did to prototype this out. But um, they describe it as being kind of a weird experience because they, I think they posted on Craigslist or something and asked that people meet them at a hotel room. <laughs> and so that kind of had some red flags on it already. But Anyways, they had people kind of come to hotel rooms and they told them, like, we're going to be filming your experience, which, again, seems odd. But the robot came to the door, and I think it was just an iPad that was, like, on the, that created the face of the robot. And um, each, it was just done, like, on a in PowerPoint with all that they used. And so I think it was just timed. So one version of this robot, it's like a, some sort of car or, like I said, some sort of remote control something. And the iPad's there, so, the, like, you know, the person opens the door. And the robot, there's a smile, there's no eyes, it's just a smile, and then um, it asks if the person wants to play a game. And they're like, well, this is kind of odd. I don't, I don't, do I? I don't know. And so they said, okay, that doesn't work well. And they had another um, version of the robot, and after the person took the towels or whatever item that they needed to take, the robot made like some little chirping sound and then went away. And it kind of signaled the end of that interaction. And then the third one that they prototyped was that the robot, after you took the towels or whatever it was, it kind of like turned side to side and it danced. And people really loved that. And so the hotel robots now that you can find in certain hotels, I've actually got to see this too, is you might order towels up to your room and it kind of sings this little song after you take your towels or toothpaste, whatever, and it kind of does a little dance before it goes away. You kind of signal the end of an interaction and it made the robot seem more human-like by having a little face, singing a little song and dancing, and so, like I said, it made it feel more human-like, and people kind of knew what to do with that a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, but it, and they found that out not by creating this big product, but by using something really cheap to to test to test things out. Um, which, yeah. which in some ways would be sort of like A/B testing, where you some people often do that with like email campaigns or um, you know putting out newsletters with little tests to see like which ad does better, this one or that one, and and you can actually track some of that stuff. So you're just saying prototype as much as you can early on and I, I like how you said it what was it again um design as if you're right but test as if you're wrong prototype as if you know you're right but test as if you're wrong and another great thing about that is that experience with the hotel robots i just told you about that took them two days it doesn't take a long time you can have answers quick one day was just the prototyping of making the actual little remote control somethings with the little ipads and powerpoint that was one day and then the testing was the next day so they had all that data from two days. Wow. And I'm sure that was extremely valuable. And um, they're definitely glad they learned those things up at the front end. Oh, absolutely. No, great. So this prototype and then last step, test, or is that is the prototyping in the testing phase? What is that? Or what is the, what is the last one? Yeah. So testing is technically another phase or stage. But I kind of think that most often they're inextricably connected. Kind of like you were asking, like, are, are they separate or are they together? Because they're really hard to pull apart. Um, but yeah, and the testing phase, I think it's kind of self-explanatory. 
you're soliciting feedback from users um, about the prototypes that you've created for them. And the best thing is that the user can test them in their environment or the context that they will be using it in. So in the example of the hotel robot, they had people at a hotel opening a hotel door, you know, calling down to the front desk, opening a hotel door, as opposed to saying, hey, can you come into our office um, for about, you know, 30 minutes today and we're going to present this robot to you because it's out of context. So a customer or a user is being impacted by that context, even though they may not realize it. One thing that's really important about the testing process is about how we're testing, you know, you have to be really intentional about how you're doing that. So a lot of times it's not enough just to kind of plop a prototype down in front of somebody and say, okay, now you play with it and I'm going to sit back and observe what you do and take some notes. Most often we have to really be intentional about how we're letting someone interact with that prototype. And most often the way to do this is by asking, you know, what do we want to get out of this? What is it that we're really testing for? So for example, if we're testing for how somebody interacts with a hotel robot, it doesn't make sense to set it down on a table and say, now you play with it, because if they're really in the context of ordering cows from a hotel, they're not going to pick it up. <laughs> I would hope not. Yeah. Um, or, so it's important to think about how we're going to do that. And there's, I mean, you can think about that in any number of ways. If um, you want to test a website, that might be an example where you say, hey, we have this wireframe, we built it in XD. We want you to find out how to visit a museum and buy two adult tickets and then let me know what time the museum opens and have them figure out how to go through the website on their own without telling them. So you have to leverage what, what information you're trying to figure out. Is it navigation? Is it looks? Is it the interaction? What, what element are we trying to figure out here? And that's what you're testing for. Yeah, I could even do, um, you know, when it comes to design, you know, whether you're creating something else, just, well, is it, are you testing on is it desktop or is it also mobile or, you know, are people watching something on YouTube or are they watching it on Instagram or Facebook or are they uh, watching with the sound on or with the sound off? But thinking through all those things is just really important for um, thinking through how people are going to absorb, absorb things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. No, great. Well, well that, well, that is super helpful. I'm really excited about kind of learning a little bit about design thinking and I'm surprised that too that I haven't run into it before, but I can, I can really see how being intentional about thinking through that process is um, it's just going to be extremely helpful because often looking at this, I can t- tell where people, you know, they kind of started with, well, let's, um, let's ideate and here's, you know, our idea. Can you create a prototype and you create a prototype for them, whether it's, you know, a video or logo or design something. And then they don't really test it. They just put it out there and assume it's going to, going to work. Um, and, and often, and often there's just so many issues with that because you haven't gone through this whole process. Um, and so I, I know I'm excited to kind of think through the work that I do in, in, this, step, in, this, in this process. Do you have any interesting, other interesting stories that have come up through that process or, or tips along each step of the way? Like do this, don't do this, or takeaways, uh, anything that stood out to you? For me and for creatives in general, in my opinion, the ideation phase is the easiest phase. But one of the things about design thinking that can make that ideation phase much more powerful is if you bring your user into that into that stage. And so that could look like, um, you know, maybe you're designing some sort of a restaurant or you're designing or creating um, a car. I don't know. But while you're coming up with solutions, have your user or a few users in the room participating with you. And that's one of the big transitions of design in general right now is because design 
really used to be a marketing tool to get people to buy something. Um, and now it's more about a tool to create change. And it was, again, another shift was from consumerism to participation. So if you can bring somebody in the room to do that with you, that's really, that's a really powerful thing. But the tricky thing, and again, for creatives, I think that ideation comes naturally. We tend to be more okay with testing things and seeing how they go and failing. It might be okay with us. And it might be okay to come up with a hundred ideas and pretend that we're designing for Harry Potter or influencing our idea of a car with the business model of Chipotle. That's something we've done here too at IWU. Um, but for other people, that's extremely uncomfortable. And they can kind of sit there and feel really um, discouraged or confused. And so that's something when you engage other people in the process that we have to be careful about. And I think I'm mainly speaking to myself here because this is something I'm very guilty of, is kind of being able to make sure we're all on the same page and encouraging that um, sort of design and creativity with people in a way that's comfortable and understandable and um, has value to them too. So just kind of something for creatives to watch out for. Well, I really like that idea of bringing kind of your end user in at the ideate stage. And it's something that I've never done before, but I think too often we assume like, well, what do people need or want to see or, and we say what we want, but we never actually invite them into the conversation. And I think if you could do that, you'll end up with something much more powerful if you do that at that stage. And uh, that, that's a, that can be a big takeaway that I think could be, be much more powerful. Like what kind of content do people want to hear? Um, what are people looking for? And actually ask them questions about um, if it's content they want to consume, like what do they actually want to see and ask them directly as opposed to just trying to, to assume? Yeah. And design thinking isn't the magic catch-all. It doesn't mean that problems are no longer or that we're suddenly going to make, you know, a billion dollars more next year. It, it doesn't mean that by any means. Um, but there are a fair number of companies, too many to list, that have adopted design thinking. And one of the ones that I like is Airbnb. So Airbnb... I think it has three founders, I believe, that were working together on it. And I think they had had it out for maybe a two, three years at this time. And they were making a net profit of $200 a week on Airbnb. That's all that they were making. And they were about to, you know, turn in and say, we're done. And they actually engaged in the design thinking process. And I don't know the exact details of that by any means. Um, but they engaged in the design thinking process. And the next year, they turned over a billion dollars in revenue. Wow. That's nuts. That is. Yeah. So again, it's not it's not a magic catch-all. It doesn't mean it can solve all of your problems by any means, but it has the impacts that it can have are powerful. No, that's that sounds good. Perfect. Well, if if people want to learn more, do you have any recommended um, you know readings, any additional resources, podcasts that you recommend people check out, or even anything that you've really enjoyed recently that is um, not related to design thinking that you are have just been excited about and um, encouraging? Yeah. So for business owners, entrepreneurs, people engaged in that sort of business practice, um, design is business is really great. It's a, it's published by Wiley. I can't remember the exact uh, author or authors on it, but it has been an amazing book for me. I love it. A um, couple of different websites or go-to places to make sure you're getting accurate information are anything by Stanford. Stanford and Harvard were the two that really pushed design thinking forward. Um, not just in terms of universities, but in terms of organizations in general. It was them. So Stanford, another group is IDEO. They're another great one to check out design thinking, anything design thinking related. 
And then lastly, uh, Robert Keardale, C-U-R-E-D-A-L-E. Robert Keardale has books that have probably a couple hundred different design thinking practices. And I believe he orders his books by the different phases, whether it's, um, and he includes some other phases too, like planning. So all of that kind of different practices and different methods you can find in a Robert Keardale book as well. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, I'll definitely include those links in the podcast um, so people can can click on them and, and get them. But, you know, thanks so much, Jesse. I know that's Jesse with two S's and two E's, J-E-S-S-E-E. Um, is, do you have any other links or personal links that you'd want to include in the reference links to, to work you've done or how people can find you if they want to hear, hear your thoughts or bounce ideas off of you? Uh, I don't have my own website. I should by now, but I don't. You can always reach me on LinkedIn. My name on LinkedIn is actually Country Jesse. Country is in the word C-O-U-N-T-R-Y. Is that is actually my first name. Um, and then Jesse is my middle name. So if you type in Country Jesse, I'll probably be the only one on LinkedIn. The only one that shows up. Yeah, I know. I saw that. That uh, Your name is actually Country. It's the first name. So. It is. It's a, it's yes. a great, great name. So I, I know in the world of uh, being able to Google yourself, um, I'm sure Country Jesse is um, much more unique in, in many ways. <laughs> it is, yes. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and uh, thanks so much, Jesse. It's been um, my pleasure. And I know I've taken away a lot from, from our conversation and uh, hope our listeners will too as well. Well, that wraps up another episode of No Fat Cats, where we help high-performing creative teams get even better. That was our conversation with Jesse Miller, also known as Country Jesse Miller. Uh, her first name is actually Country. And I have a lot of takeaways just going through those steps. And it gave me uh, definitions. It gave me some terms to help understand the stages that I knew I needed to go through. In some circles, some of these steps might be known as a discovery session or kind of exploratory. But whatever you call it, the process of getting to know your user, developing an avatar or a customer profile, and knowing who they are and what their problems are, if you do those steps first before you start creating content that's going to address them, your content is going to be much more applicable and much more direct and is going to actually solve their problems rather than just making things that you assume people are going to want to listen to. Actually ask people. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Until next time, have a great one and take care.